Hi humans, welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, we have Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers. She is a therapist, sex educator, speaker, author, mother, and a wife. I'm tired (laughs) even reading that. (laughs) She wrote the book Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, which helps everyday people and clinicians to understand what it means to grow up with abstinence education or a faith mired in sexual shame and dysfunction. And the book provides new narratives and practices for those who desire to both heal and hold on to their faith orientation. And Adam and I are both reading through it right now and we are absolutely loving it. It is amazing. We highly recommend it. But mm. without further ado, welcome, Dr. Tina. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, before we dive in, um, could you give us a little bit of a background on who you are, where you come from, um, or any little details you would like to uh, to give us? Sure. Yeah. So I just... Um left a 28-year career as an associate professor at Seattle Pacific University, where I um, taught in the marriage and family therapy graduate department. And um, I directed their medical family therapy program, taught in the MFT program. And um, one of the courses that I taught the whole time I was there was their graduate sexuality course, which you have to take for licensure as a marriage and family therapist. And that particular course actually was the course that shifted my career. Um, Because all of the years that I taught that course, I had my students write their sexual autobiography, which when I tell that to people, they usually completely freak out because they're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I would never do that, you know? Right. Absolutely. They're like, the last thing I want is all that to be on paper. (laughs) Exactly. Right. But you know, when you're going to see a therapist, you really want to know that they've dealt with their multiple stories that they have in their life, you know, like their family of origin story and their gender story and whatever. Right. And our sexual story, especially when you live in the United States is one that's really underground, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. most of us grow up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming around sexuality. So our our story really isn't much of a narrative. It's kind of this, like, I remember this incident and Mm. this experience, but it's really not a cohesive narrative. And so I give my students like 60 or 70 questions and ask them to think, really through several generations and think about things like how affection and um, was demonstrated in gender and then kind of walk them through their childhood and their adolescence and their adulthood and just ask lots of questions. And through doing that, 
they would become clear about the legacy that they were carrying mm. and it would become a cohesive narrative. And many of them would say that as challenging as it was to write, it was one of the most important papers that they wrote in grad school. And yeah. it would, they would write as many as 300 papers in grad oh, school. My so word. Yeah. They wrote a lot. Yeah. So a for lot. it to be one of the most important is, is, uh, yeah. there's a lot to pick from. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so right around the year 2000, I started to notice that there was this dramatic shift in the feeling and tone and narrative of many of these autobiographies that I was reading, but I didn't quite understand what I was seeing. So what I was seeing was just so much humiliation and disgust in themselves mm. and in what they were experiencing and feeling and thinking about their story. Yeah. And yet what they were describing wasn't anything different than what I had heard in years prior. And so I couldn't figure out why they were feeling so badly about what they were thinking and feeling and doing right. because it hadn't changed. Yeah. Right. And so I had to start asking more questions like, you know, what, what were you being told or what was happening in culture? Cause yeah. I couldn't figure it out. And you said this, this was 28 years of this, right? Like if you kind of yeah. seeing like yeah. a little bit like different generations of, right. of people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I had been already teaching the course for like eight years prior to this. So, um, so it took me, like I said, a few years and what I began to realize was that I was hitting the first wave of, Mm. kids that were now these are kids that are in their 20s right yeah who um had hit the abstinence only education that was sweeping the united states and that began yeah. in the 80s but these were now kids that were getting their teens in the 90s yeah and um and then some of those also got sort of purity movement teachings too whether they were in religious homes or not depending on if they were in the bible belt or if they were just conservative um, neighborhoods or homes or whatever. And I um, mean, then that continued year after year after year. And I started putting it together. Like some of those kids were in youth groups, they were going to rallies and whatever. Yeah. And um, so, and I just was out of it, you know, I was, I was, <laughs> you older, were disconnected I was raising from my that. own kids. I just didn't know. And I yeah. had grown up in a very different home and um, I just was all over my head. I just didn't know what was going on in culture. So it took me till about, 2006 to get all the pieces put together and and then I started around 2004 I started talking about it writing about it saying oh my goodness you know something's going on we've got mm. to stop this we're going way backwards not forwards and um and then in 2006 I was asked because I was becoming so outspoken yeah. Yeah. I was asked to write an article in an online journal called the other journal intersection of theology and culture. So I did, and it was called Caught Between the Sheets, How an Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. Mm. And that article went viral. And I realized that I had struck a nerve. <laughs> and um, and then that's when I started working on my book, and it took me 11 years to write the book. Oh, and, wow. And I also realized when I wrote that article, I thought, 
because the article, the journal was was a little bit academic, just slightly, where people actually referenced what they were writing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I found out that I wasn't the only one that was concerned about this. There mm-hmm. were a couple people at Union Seminary that had been writing about this since the late 70s. Yeah. And um, so I thought, oh, you know, it just hadn't hit mainstream. Sure. Um, and so that just really changed the trajectory of my career. I continued to direct in medical family therapy and do stuff in medicine and stuff. But um, I really began to look at what was happening in the world of sexuality and sexual shame. Got my PhD in clinical sexology and started really speaking out about yeah. this and kind of made that my my the next focus in my career. Wow. Do you feel so, like you struck a chord with with academics like? in that sort of field or is it something where socially you felt like it, it, it sparked a little bit of a voicing from people that were normally quiet about the subject? It it was really, um, both. I would say that, um, when I went to write the book, I didn't intend to take on the church. I didn't recommend (laughs) people, (laughs) but, um, but I really cared about, um, the church and the, and the progressive church, what was happening sort of in the emergent church field at that point. Um, But I also cared in that sort of the general academic world in the, in the world of clinical sexology, that was a very secular field. And, and at the time it was a field that wanted nothing to do with anybody having any religious flavor at all. And yet it was a field that prided itself in caring for the marginalized. And at that point, it was, in fact, marginalizing religious people. Mm. And, wow. um, and I cared about that oh, because awesome. this was a group of people who, that were experiencing religious um, sexual trauma and yeah. sexual shame that were profoundly marginalized. And they could not find a therapist who understood them and could treat them. Yeah. And, um, and so I took that on in that field. I was the only voice speaking about it at that time in that field. And, um, and so I started speaking in that organization about you, you cannot say that you care about the marginalized and then marginalize this people group. Mm -hmm. Um, You have got to have cultural competence with this group as well. Yeah. And that's why I wrote my book, to speak to the professional as well as to the lay person who yeah. was experiencing it because there was nobody who was writing to the professional at all, not to the physician, not to the therapist, not to the clergy, no one. Yeah. Um, and you needed cultural competency to treat that person. I would have had people say, I see a therapist. They don't know what to do with me. Right. Well, I mean, all. I had heard you mention um, a, a couple of interviews ago that you had done that, um, even once you entered in the collegiate field uh, and you were training therapists, there still wasn't very many people that were wanting to reach into sexuality, uh, no. even in that field, that people were just kind of brushing brushing through that or taking taking the course as just something that was obligatory. That's right. It's still that way. In fact, um, Iowa, there's a brand new ethics book coming out in the field of marriage and family therapy. And... Um, I was asked if I would write the chapter on sexuality because I'm almost the only one that's speaking out about how the field of marriage and family therapy, this is the field that treats couples primarily. Mm -hmm. 
that field has not dealt with sexuality. Wow. So strange. I mean, right. I, I know from, I mean, exper experience of the things that like I heard or didn't hear growing up. Um, we both had conservative upbringings and um, my, my parents, I heard, would listen to you know, marriage things with it, whether it was like radio or it was like, and not podcast back then, but like they would have like <laughs> tapes and stuff, whatever. Yeah, um, sure. And yeah, things just never talked about sexuality. Um, no. My my mom, she actually was pretty good about talking about sexuality mm -hmm. within the realm of um, Christianity. Um, there's mm -hmm. some stuff, of course. It wasn't it wasn't perfect. Um, she did sure. uh, her a, a good job for her what she grew up with, though too. Um, but mm -hmm. I never heard anyone but her talk about it. Mm. Yeah. 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 And you know, it's that we have a long history as you've seen in the, I talk about it in the book and that's sort of why I felt I needed to give us a little bit of history to understand why we are so poor in doing this in the United States with this long history of carving out the body as this bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it just does us no favors because we live in our bodies yeah, and we love with our bodies. It's like our bodies are, is the pen that we write our poetry with, mm. right? We cannot not love, love without our bodies. Yeah. And um, so it's, so good. it's ridiculous that we've made the body bad. And then when we make it bad, then we don't teach mm. about what our bodies are and is and how then we express with it and how we honor it and honor others with it. And then we send it underground. And then when we send it underground, we just cause all these problems. And then we build it in America. We've built an economy on selling it and selling people. Yeah. And of course, that hurts. Well, and that's uh, so interesting, too, because I feel like that references back to where you were talking about um, marginalization and how uh, even sex therapy has been something that's been very secular. Mm -hmm. And you coming into it uh, as a Christian. Um, <clears throat> right. You, uh, it's you were able to bring that representation into the field and be able to speak from yeah. from your space, which I know you grew up with a Swedish immigrant background, right? Right. And mm -hmm. so sex talk and education was all a part of your upbringing, but to be able to yeah. be living in America and be able to see what it looks like within the church and be able to bring that into the space, I think was so important. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I don't know if you, you know the Enneagram, but yeah, I do. Um, okay, so oh, nice. I, I'm a five. <laughs> Um, okay. and I, so I love your book because it, it, it kind of, uh, pleases my five self because <laughs> <laughs> you, you give definitions and you give yeah. words to things I didn't know the proper verbiage for and language. Yeah. And you go into history, which I love and give me like, mm -hmm. con like, I don't know. Context. These, yeah. Context for, yeah. Uh, for where things came from. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I love that. And that's just like another I don't know. Uh, go get her book. It's so good. Um, but yeah. yeah, so because of your upbringing, though, you, I guess you didn't really, did you ever have a moment where you, there was something that you had to deconstruct from? Because I'm, because of our upbringing, I feel like yeah. there's so much deconstruction that's like happening yeah. all the time in our hearts and in our minds of, <laughs> right. of um, sexuality and just religious things. I'm, I'm just curious if that's, that was ever part of your process? Well, I suppose it, it is, and it has been, it, but, um, 
it doesn't feel like it's in the forefront for me. Yeah. And I probably, oh, this probably harkens to my, I'm a, so I'm a seven with an eight. Oh, nice. And, okay. Um, so I'm a silver lining person. And so, um, and I'm also the eight part of me is a little bit of a rebel. So if I'm deconstructing, I'm deconstructing all the time. Yeah. And I have no problems with that because mm-hmm. I'll just be like, well, that's just what needs to happen. I totally understand. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I'm creating and doing things right all the time. Cause that's, yeah. that's what I do. Yeah. Um, and I, I think with my particular upbringing, um, we were enough just who we were as a family that um, there was just a lot of permission to hmm. listen to yourself and believe in yourself. Yeah. yeah. Because um, your faith yeah. wasn't an imposition on you either, right? Like you came to your own faith around 14 is what I had heard. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And and I'll say that, and I didn't, I don't talk about this in the book, but in my Swedish family i had two aunts that had their their own christian had a christian faith but um i didn't come and they uh, practiced that christian faith um but i didn't come to ask a lot of questions about it until oh golly i was in my 30s wow yeah and and because they practiced it in a way where they met at my one of my great aunt's house on the property um, every Sunday. And, um, and it was a non-evangelical. In other words, they didn't talk, they didn't shove it down your throat anyway. Sure. And, um, so it wasn't until way later in my life that I sat my aunt down and I said, tell me, explain to me your faith. You've never given me a name. You've never anything. And so she pulled out pieces of paper out of her Bible, unfolded them. (laughs) And it was all like written out. And she said, basically, we believe that we are the descendant faith of acts. Mm. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so good. And, and she just went on and explained this whole thing to me. And I knew, I didn't know anything about any of it. Mm. And, um, it was really lovely and wonderful. And we had this incredible conversation and, and, and I'll say that, that they lived it. Mm. I mean, they absolutely lived it in every way. Um, because that was the that the movement in Acts, which I I love Acts as well, mm-hmm. is is progressive. I mean, it's oh, yeah. inclusion. Oh, absolutely. Well, now we're all together, and now right. you're they in. You're in. <laughs> and they take care of everyone, yep. and everyone belongs, and that's the way they always were. And I so I experienced that in my family. Yeah. Um. That's. I mean, there was just there wasn't judgment. Yeah. You were, and you know, we we had one divorce. In the now, mind you, this was not a perfect family. No, no, for <laughs> sure. Hear that. No, no family is. <laughs> yeah, um, but there was a couple of divorces, and these aunts. I mean, there were people in the family that you know backstabbed and all that kind of thing. But sure. these aunts, they maintained relationships with the people that were non-blood. Mm. Wow, absolutely, Love and that. they would not tolerate you down. You know, talking bad about anybody. What you incredible know? women. And, Oh yeah, they were amazing women, um, and strong, 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 strong women. Um, uh, in fact, one of them was one of the patriarchs of our family. Yeah. Um. So, 
but you know, they're, they're your family. And so you don't again, think about it until so much later. Like I literally was in grad school doing my family of origin work when I thought about it and thought about the positions these people had in my family, did Mm -hmm. not think about it at all when I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I think that's a huge, um, really unique part of your story. I, I I feel like a lot of, um, the now kind of up and coming, whether they're sex therapists or they're just like sex positive speakers or whatever their roles are, most people have that deconstruction story. Um, right. and, it comes from a place of negativity. Yeah. And, and not yeah. that that, I mean, that's every story is beautiful, but I think that makes yours so unique is that, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't really have that part so much. And, yeah. um, and something I'm curious about, you know, a lot of more conservative households are also not LGBTQ affirming. And mm-hmm. so I was, I'm wondering, have you had much response from the LGBTQ community um, from your work, the book or from yeah, your speaking? I've had a lot of positivity. I mean, I have my absolute blind spots because I'm cisgendered white. Sure. Um, and so I obviously have all of my... Um, blind spots and I get called out, which I really appreciate. I ask for it. Um, uh, But I also have been um, really welcomed. So I've spoken at um, uh, Q Christian Fellowship um, when they were Christian, when they were what they were before. Um, I've been on panels there and spoken and um, which was when my book came out. So, um, and this Tuesday, uh, Matthias Roberts, um, yeah. his book is coming out. I think it's shame, no more shame or shame, no more. I should have it on the top of my head. That's terrible that I don't. Um, but, uh, his book is coming out and it's basically, um, just this, the, like the parallel to my book, but it's mm. for the LGBTQ community, yeah. but it speaks to everybody that yeah. hits so many of his story. Yeah. Um, really hold the LGBTQ plus community well, so yeah. much better, I think, um, because his stories are from his own life and right. from the lives of so many people he knows. And um, so it speaks to that so well. Um, right. And like um, to bring that personal experience into that. Whereas yeah, like, I mean, comes us, out tomorrow. us all being a cisgender straight um uh, we have just what we can perceive as as inclusivity and things like that but when but when you're on the side of things where you are living experience uh of the church through um through that lgbtq plus space it's definitely going to bring out a lot of different um nuances yeah right well and i think you're just othered all the time you've Mm -hmm. been othered Mm -hmm. everywhere you know, and, and this, the thing about, you know, well, but we love you. Just, that's baloney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you're either completely welcome to the table or you're yeah. not welcome. Yeah. Right. You know, and I, I stopped going to churches 20, when I, I went through, uh, I got a divorce from my, my kid's father, uh, golly, 23 years ago. And that was my first experience of being othered. Mm. And that's when I really realized how sociologically formed the church was. Um, Because all of a sudden I was asked, I wasn't asked, I was stopped being asked to teach, um, you Mm. know, in their like 
you know, Stephen's ministry program or whatever. And right. here I was teaching, you know, all over the place and yeah. I was no longer asked to teach. And, <laughs> um, yep. and I thought, so what changed here? You know? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, and, it's, uh... and I, couple are, you know, a lot of our couple friends, they stopped, you know, calling and talking to me. And it was just this bizarre thing. And I thought, oh my goodness, like, here's where I've been so blind to all the other people who've been othered. And I thought, I won't don the door of a church again, where anyone that I know is not welcome. I will not do it. Yeah. Because this is not Christ. It's not you know, it's not, it's not, has anything to do with Christianity. Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Our um, pastor of our church that we've uh, recently began going to uh, said something really profound in one of the first times we visited. And that was um, Christians tend to have this perspective of that. We are the ones setting the table and allowing people to come to it. But when you really are able to follow in Jesus's path is the moment where you realize you're just sitting down at the table. You're finally just sitting down at the table of humanity. Yeah. Yes, and, exactly. And if anyone's curious, we go to Grace Point with an, an E at the end. And we live yes. in Nashville. So, and it's yes. an. Uh, we go to Josh's church. Yes, yes. Josh. <laughs> yeah, it's an all affirming, um, very yes. inclusive church. So, if anyone's listening who's visiting Nashville, even, um, you are more than welcome. We, yes. we help lead yes. on the worship team. We're there every week. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, was, I was there last year right after, um, right after Wild Goose. Oh, okay. Wow. Oh, perfect. The, the Sunday of Wild Goose, I was there. We yeah. just were talking about Wild Goose. Okay, that's wild. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Josh, Josh just texted me. Maybe I'll be there this year. Oh, oh yay. So fun. Literally, yeah. Nathaniel was just at Q Conference just this last week. <laughs> yes. Well, that's awesome. Um, so I do you also get responses from, from non-religious people? Do you like work with non-religious people and they're just oh, telling you, hey, I need help? navigating my sexuality um yeah yeah i yeah i hear from people all from all walks of life and you know part of it is from the book part of it is from my speaking part of it is from my teaching you know i run the northwest institute on intimacy which trains physicians and clergy and therapists of all ilk um on sexuality and um so part of my work is trying to open up and hold accountable the progressive church and wherever it's going. Um, And then part of my work is really pushing clinicians to own their responsibility to their sexual biases and Mm -hmm. to sexual health training. And so that pushes me into the world of, of, um, of healthcare. And um, so I'm in that world. I'm developing curriculum all the time for, parents of you know that is it doesn't have anything to do with religion but just has to do with you have a responsibility hopefully that we can help you with and being able to raise shame-free children yeah um and we you need help we all need help because we didn't get it so how can I give you material that'll make it easy for you and help you deal with your shame triggers because Mm. you have them we all do and so how can I help you because if we can do that then you can raise kids that can attach and do intimacy well. And yeah. that's what we want to be able to help people to do. I love that. You know, we, yeah. I, we don't even have kids. I don't know if you knew this, but we're married. Today's are actually our anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, happy anniversary. Well, thank, thank you. you. Um, we don't have kids yet, but I, you know, I've been 
following you on Instagram for a while and I see when you post on your highlights or on your story of the books that you recommend for certain aged kids. And I'm like, I'm so grateful. I mean, I, like I said, don't even have kids yet, but I'm like, wow, I almost want to get those books so I can like learn from that perspective and like retrain my own brain. (laughs) Train before we even have to get there. You can't, you can't get them too soon and read them too soon because you actually have to almost hear yourself say that stuff mm-hmm. yes. to get your brain going in a different direction. Yeah. Um, that's how you get comfortable is actually hearing yourself speak. Like you guys should get them and read them to each other. Oh yeah. yeah. It's like retraining your own child mind, right? Yep. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah I love it's it. fun too. It's really fun. The books are super fun. Yeah. <laughs> I know they look That's so great. cute and they just look so positive and I don't they know are. I'm just I'm all about kids books anyway I actually nanny yeah. two days a week so I uh so I'm yeah, I'm around kids and I'm speaking the kid lingo all the time so <laughs> yeah it might be something I just need to kind yeah. of you know help ask me the my... parents if you can if you can start the kids on their <laughs> sex education yes Maybe I could. Yeah. So I actually have a question since we've kind of gone to both ends of the spectrum here where we've talked about Christianity and sex therapy and then in um, the secular therapy as well. Do you did you see that change specifically in uh, Christians that you would see when it came to the purity movement and all of that? Did you see that bleed over into people that that their sexuality didn't wasn't uh, engulfed in like this? this purity movement like if they were secular or had or non-theistic and did you see that bleed over and affect socially are you are you asking did it did it affect people who were not not going to church yes 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 see so one of the things that most people don't realize is that the united states became a church state Hmm. in effect Hmm. in 1980 Okay. So when Reagan became president, yeah, when that happened, we blended church and state. Mm-hmm. So when we started pumping billions of dollars into abstinence education, and we withdrew the sex education and the sex research that we had had prior to that, yeah, I and I didn't realize this until until I started traveling around the United States and speaking. I had people come up to me and say, I was not in a religious home and I got this same purity education, the same purity teaching. Gosh. And, and there's research that shows that abstinence education that people got 80% of it was medically inaccurate. Wow. Whoa. That they were told things like condoms have holes in it and you'll get pregnant. Oh my gosh. And it's still on the books. I was just recently looked up under CECAS, which is one of the government um, Mm -hmm. organizations that keeps track of sort of what's happening in sex education around the country. They've tried to change laws on the books over the last 10 years even. And there are only like two states that were able to get laws changed to make their sex education medically accurate. Hmm. Oh, my word. Yes. That's scary. There are, yeah, there are only like, I don't even remember now. I can't remember what it is, but it's like 13 states that have medically accurate sex education. What? Like, where do you yeah, get your information like from? Or 17, something like that. It's crazy. That it's is nuts. wild. 
So do you feel like, do you feel like Christianity has ever contributed to any sort of like sex positive ideologies or teaching or anything like that? Or do you feel like it's always? No, I don't think so. No, I think we, and it's about power and control. It's about, it's about this fear um, and controlling uh, people and women in in large amounts, you know, Um, if we keep people afraid, then we can control, control what they do. And controlling bodies has been Mm -hmm. a huge thing we've done. Yeah. Um, And we keep people ignorant. Um, Power is knowledge. I mean, knowledge is power. And when we start teaching people about their bodies, they make decisions about, no, you're wrong. You know, this is, this is the right thing for me to do. And this is how I want to take care of myself or take care of my family. And, you know, and they start standing up for their rights or what they believe is going to be best for them. Right. Um, And, you know, they're not so easily controlled. Um, and the, I mean, we have had the, we have had the research we have on how you protect your children for a very, very long time. That if you provide age appropriate sex education as they grow up over time, they will get involved with sex later, make safer sexual choices. Yeah. They'll have lower STI rates, lower teen pregnancy rates. They will have a better sex life when they get older. They will choose more compatible partners and they will describe themselves as closer to their parents overall through their teen years. These are all things we want, exactly. but we fail to provide comprehensive sex education. And this has been true in the European countries for years and we still don't do it. Yeah, that's wild. Well, did you, so how old are your kids? So we have four Okay, and they're between... 28 and 34. Okay. So they're, they're grown now. They're grown and they're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So uh, you did say that you, you got a divorce like 23 years ago and you remarried, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. I remarried. Yeah. Remarried. We've been together 13 years. He remarried seven years ago. Okay. So then he, then your husband, he was, was he, or was he not really around during the like sex educating for your kids? Like, he so he was not around for the sex educating of my kids. But what's really interesting is I married somebody from a European background too. Okay, yeah. So he actually raised his kids very similarly to me. Oh, awesome! Which means that they grew up talking about sex the whole time they were growing up. Oh, too. well, that makes things easier. <laughs> it was. I was. It was a little miracle. Our yeah. relationship was a little miracle because our kids get along like they grew up together. Oh wow! Oh, I and, love that. Um, yeah, I know we're pretty lucky. That's awesome. Um, Is, yeah. Was there a moment like with your kids that, you know, when they were in a relationship and they said, hey, mom, like, I think I'm ready to be sexually active. I don't know if that's what the words that they use, but yeah. was there a moment that they were able to communicate that or was it just like little moments and little conversations? Well, they're all real different. Yeah. And, um, and some are more open than others. Mm-hmm. Like our girls are more open than our boys. Yeah. Which I don't know if that's typical or not. They're actually pretty different people, but then they're quiet for different reasons. Um, but our girls, like so our oldest, our one of our oldest is a girl, and one of our youngest is a girl. So our oldest that's a girl 
was close to her mom, which isn't me. Mm. And our youngest is a girl is closer to me, which is my daughter. Yeah. And, um, and I know that um, the oldest, that's the girl was closer to her mom. She talked to her mom and my youngest talked to me. Yeah. Um, so I knew a lot was going on. Um, and um, yeah, we, we talked about it. Mm. Um, the boys, um, there was a lot of, talking it was yeah, okay, a little conversation story. <laughs> i'm not gonna go into them, but there's a whole lot of talking yeah the first relationship um about readiness yeah and um and there was a whole lot of talking again that one minute conversation there was just a million of them yeah and um and the really great thing is that they were great experiences like there was um there were just a lot of it was good unfolding and um one of the one of the things i talk about is um there was a, a lot of conversations about how do you want your sexual narrative to go mm. how do you want your story about the unfolding of your sexual life to be um i got to write my narrative how do you want yours to be how are you going to know that you're ready for your first gift yeah. Your first, what I mean, you know, and so we just would talk about it because this isn't going to just be your story. It's yeah. likely going to be the story that you tell your children, yep. the story you might tell your partner someday, because you're likely not to marry the first person you fall in love with. Yeah. So, how do you want this story to go for you? And, you know, do you want it to be a really good one? Right. Yeah. And so there was a lot of those kinds of conversations and readiness. How will you know that you're ready? And then there were conversations like, how do you know your partner wants or the, your girlfriend at the time? How yeah. do you know she really wants to kiss you when you want to kiss her? Right. Mm. Do you ask? Yeah. Because girls will say yes to things they actually don't really want. Yeah. And so like, there were those kinds yeah. of conversations yeah. too, a lot. I think um, that, so that, was, that gives them so much power and responsibility over their own um sex story when you when you yeah. frame it in a place where it is a legacy i think that's huge that just that change of vernacular yeah to, to bring it into a place where it's it's something that uh is something to be proud of and something to pass along and and right. and, and it's not something story. you are, are supposed to confess to your right, right, future right, right, mate right. it's it's not it's, it's not a confession no. story <laughs> you are not a flower with no petals right <laughs> no. <laughs> There were, and I talk about this in the book if you haven't gotten there, but um, we talked about porn in very particular ways mm, too. Mm -hmm. We talked about it in light of, um, I knew, um, you know, by the time Christian, my son was like, I don't know, 10, 11, you know, I knew that he was heterosexual, you know? Yeah. So I was able to talk about how that your sexuality is such a wonderful, incredible, beautiful part of you. How do you be in relationship with it as it's blooming, as it's coming alive, as, you know, you have 20 times the amount of testosterone in your body than you had <laughs> last year? You know, how do you be in relationship with it in a way that you can honor it so that when you do fall in love with the most beautiful creature in the world that you just, you know, that you've been in relationship with it in other ways that it mm. still feels like you can honor her, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and meanwhile, all the guys that you're, you know, running around with at school, they're talking about women in ways that you've never thought about women. Yeah. Like you love your mom, you love your sister, you love your aunt, you love your cousin. So how can you be in relationship with this thing that's really beautiful? And that will be beautiful in your life moving forward. But 
you're going to be in a circle where people are going to not be treating it that way. So how are you going to negotiate this? Right. It's, it's so interesting because I think it might have been a podcast I had heard from you um, where whoever it was had been talking about um, even through when when you're in a phase uh, where you're discovering porn and masturbation and you're finding all of those things to build the story of respect and love into that yeah. space so that yeah. when you do you you bring that um that that responsibility and that power and that like feeling, um, of love. feeling of love into the relationship that you do end up introducing sexuality into right yes yeah exactly yeah you know it's really you know i was listening to uh i'm listening to a book right now called prepared which is about education and and how we do our education system which is something i care a lot about and yeah. and she was quoting um a recent thing out of Forbes magazine about what are the top um, skills we most need to be teaching and cultivating in our kids in 2020 and in this next decade. And they were talking about critical thinking, emotional intelligence, problem solving skills, people management skills and creativity. And I was thinking, yeah, absolutely. This is what we need to be doing around sexual health and sexual bias in religion in so many things. And this is, you know, when I'm teaching sexuality to my own children, this is what I'm thinking. I'm not telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. I want to get them thinking because I'm not going to be making these decisions for them. They need to know how to make them for themselves. Yeah. Right. So how do I build it into them to think You're for themselves? them. Yeah. Right. Right. I've already, and I would say this to him, I made, I made my decision. Mm-hmm. I, I already wrote my narrative. How do you want yours to go? But here's how your life is going to likely unfold. Yeah. You're going to fall in love with somebody who you think walks on water. Right. You know, I'm like, I can, um, I know your heart. Like, I know how you love. I know how you're going to love this person someday. I can yeah. picture it in my mind's eye. That's so sweet. You know? Yeah, so I love you that. You have to honor that person you don't know even now. Right. Right. You know. And like I said, you know, this is this is all going to be new territory for us, especially because we both grew up in, you know, purity culture, um that kind of teaching. And I'm excited. I mean, I'm a little nervous yeah. about that yeah. one day. Um, you know, re just relearning of how to speak like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um and and I'm curious, curious, is there a line between normalized sexuality and keeping it sacred? Um, is, is there a line? If there is, where is it? Well, normalize, I'm going to put air quotes you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, normalize, I don't know what that is. Yeah. You, know, you don't turn on the TV, that's not normal. Um, <laughs> there's, there's. I don't know what um, I don't know what normalized is. Mm. Are you yeah. still there? Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like if there was anything that's. Do you want to try to define that? Yeah, I guess um, in a space where we're moving into this, uh, moving out of. How do I want to say it? I guess like Sex the spirituality and your connection to God was mm-hmm. always so tied to your sexuality. So in a space where it's like um, you would go to youth group and, and your youth group leader would ask you a question like 
so how how are you and God lately? And the, when the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, have I had any impure thoughts? Have I masturbated? Uh-huh. Have I looked at porn? And finding that space where you can dissociate that that spiritual responsibility from sexuality, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a lot of deconstruction that happens where people almost take it to polar opposite, where sexuality has nothing to do with spirituality. It's just something mm. that's physical. It's just something that mm. is progressing mm. yourself through mm. um, this pleasure cycle, I believe is, is sure. kind of the terminology. Um, okay. And, and sure. so having that, that physical sense of sexuality and, and ownership of that, but mm. then also being able to reintroduce that in a space where sexuality is sacred mm-hmm. um, yeah. and can be yeah, a spiritual yeah. practice and can be a spiritual practice. Sure. And sure. So, so to kind of like, I don't know, almost to, to, to take it from that extreme that a lot of uh, Christians, I guess, like ex evangelicals are kind of finding um, where it's, it's a complete dissociation is, do sure. you see a space where um, there can be some training to, to, to re associate that with spirituality? Yeah, yeah. So when you get to chapter seven in a book, in the book, there's a whole model in there that I call the anatomy of intimacy. Mm. And um, that um, is like concentric circles. And at the very smallest circle, the bottom circle is the body. And the body is when we're just having sex and all we're paying attention to is what the body is doing. That, that would be like the most simple and base way that we have sex. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and a lot of people have sex that way and you can have for sure have pleasure there. Yeah. Right. But there are six other levels that you can integrate into having sex that create, um, add so much more dimension to your experience of sexuality mm. and broaden the experience to create so much more eroticism and ecstatic experience. Yeah. And people do that in many, many ways. But for example, you can, you can add sensuality and you can add trust and there are ways to do that. And yeah. you can add, um, heart open, open, you know, a heart connection, and you can add um, desire, how you allow yourself in vulnerability to increase desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can add like deep beauty, and you yeah. can add um, the ecstatic in there. Now, these are all things that you have to cultivate and know how to cultivate, but they have to do with intention mm. and attention and mindfulness and eyes and breath and love and you know different things like this and um and these aren't christian you know quote unquote i mean they've been around they've been in in tantra practices and in many other kinds of practices but they take a kind of commitment to vulnerability and mindfulness and preparation and they are a part of the wisdom traditions in most ancient religions. I mean, they're, when I did my research, I found them all throughout the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew traditions. Yeah. They're in the Tantra traditions. Um, so they've been around in, in all of them. If you 
look and go deep enough. Yeah, we heard um, you say that on another episode, and that definitely yeah. piqued our interest. We're like, what? Tell us more. Yeah. It's so interesting yeah. because oh, there yeah. there is that that difficulty with sexuality and Christianity, but not in all monotheism. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, we, um, I had the first rendition of the book was way too academic. And one of my friends at the University of Minnesota was like, are you writing for the academic? I'm like, no. <laughs> so I put the whole book away and I, um, for like three years and I put together a couple's retreat and I wanted to pay attention to what people were really responding to. Mm. And that's, that's why I did the retreat thinking I'm just going to watch what people respond to that's thinking cool. that I was just going to run the retreat just for a little while and be done with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the retreat was so revolutionary in people's marriages yeah. that now I train people to run the retreat around the country. That's amazing. Incredible. The, the retreats just like can do what can't be done in a year or more of therapy and it's 36 hours it's crazy and we we use some of these um practices in in touch in the afternoons at this retreat and i tell you that a lot of the teaching is really great and wonderful and people learn stuff they just we should be teaching people as they grow up and stuff yeah but it's the touch that Mm. is so absolutely healing and we have people that haven't touched in 10 years and are ice cold and you think oh my gosh nothing's gonna work and you get them doing these exercises and I tell you because it's body mind soul and spirit Mm -hmm. and they are given very clear instruction and they know everyone else is having to do it too yes and they come back that night and you're like oh my gosh icicles melted oh my god and you just can't believe it you cannot believe it it's crazy that's uh, that's amazing that's so incredible you're such a boss i love it (laughs) (laughs) um so uh, you know before we kind of close out we did get a question um from our social media and our listeners um for you and she asks, she says, how do you overcome guilt from sexual quote unquote sins from the past? Knowing that through truth lenses, it's probably not sin, just legalism, fundamentalism, purity culture, etc. But yet that guilt still plagues and carries into marriage. Yeah, I, I would say it helps to read my book and see, like mm-hmm. you were talking about, Laura, see the whole context. Yeah. Understand that it's a man-made construction Mm -hmm. and do the hard work of the deconstruction. I mean, and it takes a lot of work, you know, and, um, and, and then I talk about in the, in the book, I talk about a model for healing sexual shame because that's what this is. It's sexual shame. And the model is, um, frame, name, claim a name. So it's frame, get yourself, uh, a sex education, Get yourself that knowledge, build that scaffolding to learn that so much of what you were taught was absolutely wrong yeah. because you're going to rewire your brain. That's how you get it to begin to melt away right? and start to claim your body as beautiful, start to tell your story to people who, who will believe you yes. and give you compassion and empathy mm-hmm. and find out that you're not alone. There are so many people. Yeah. who have, were given so much BS and are suffering under that too. So if you work with other people that are like working as hard as you are, you're going to like together kind of help melt each other yeah. away. Yes. Um, and then together you'll start aiming. That's the aim part. Aim for a new legacy 
so that you will help not pass down this legacy of, and it's not guilt, it's shame. So mm. it's important to know the difference between guilt and shame. Yes. Shame is the sense that you are innocent. You are an innocent person. You're doing innocent life. You're curious. You desire connection and pleasure with other people or you desired as an adolescent to connect with somebody, you know, and you had those feelings. Those feelings were real. God gave them to you. Yeah. You wanted to connect with somebody. That's super normal. Yeah. Right. And you did. And then you just got slammed. Right. Right. That's it's like that. That is shame. And you feel unworthy of love. And your whole being is shutting down. Like, I don't deserve love. Yeah. Like, that's shame. Guilt is, I believe lying is wrong and I lied anyway. I believe, right. you know, something that is true to my absolute ethic, and I believe that is wrong for all people, and myself included, and I'm doing it anyway. Right. That's guilt. And guilt is motivating a change. Shame is not motivating a change. Mm. Shame, shame motivates us to feel depression and anxiety and suicide. Mm. Yeah, that's that's so, so good. Yeah, differentiation yeah. between those are so important. And I will yeah. echo that of you saying to get your book because yeah, it is incredible. It like I said, it does put words to mm-hmm. what you're going through and what I, I know I've personally. So far in the book, I have learned so much in the ways that I've even still needed and am needing to heal. And um, mm-hmm. like you said, put call it what it is. Yeah, yeah, it changes your language and it gives you a community of people. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And if people know that there are other people in their community that might be struggling with this too, put a book group together. Yeah. Yep. You know, read it together, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. I definitely say you should. Anyone listening, you definitely (laughs) should. Um, So lastly, is there, we will put where they can find you. So do you have a website, Instagram? Is it okay if people reach out to you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say on my website too, if anybody's raising kids, we've got a free downloadable um, little sheet that has normative, um, developmental like a cheat sheet that'll say what your kids are going to be into in the next you know next year you know yeah you know what to prepare for yeah and we've got all kinds of like free um like I don't know podcasts and um talks that I've given that you can listen to and stuff like that so feel free to just indulge yourself I love that Okay. Well, you guys heard it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being our, on our podcast today. We've oh, so appreciated it. Absolutely. It's just been an yeah. honor. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's sure. been fun. Good. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Bye.